Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. You can find it on page 871 of your pew Bible. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, church. I'm Monica Reynolds. I'm one of your pastors here at this amazing church, and we're going to be continuing in our Parent Traps sermon series this morning. Now, this really is an amazing church. You know, I'm not just saying that. You all know this. Uh, Yesterday, we had a leader lifter event um, here, and and I was just driving home, just feeling grateful um, for the fact that we have so many disciples here at Ebenezer Church who day after day and week after week uh, are willing um, to put um, all of the gifts that God has given them into practice and to serve and to love God and to welcome others into that. So I really am grateful to be here with you all as we continue in this series. Now, we are in a parent trap series, uh, but as Pastor Rob said last week, um, I am well aware that not every person in this room today is a parent. I'm aware that there are some of you in this room that don't feel um, the call or the desire to ever be a parent. And there's also people in this room who want nothing more than to become a parent, and that is yet to be. For those of us who are parents, I'm aware that there are children at various ages and stages and that families have all sorts of dynamics to them. There is a great diversity in this room. And so while we are certainly going to be talking about parent traps and some parental wisdom, more importantly, I'm going to be sharing some biblical wisdom that is applicable to us all as children of God. We have the most perfect parent ever in God. And also, as a church, through our baptismal covenant, through the commitment that we make to one another, all of us have committed to raising up the children of this church in the faith and in the church community. So, that's where we are. And the truth is that each and every one of us here has so much potential. When we stand up here and we baptize a four-month-old, or a 40-year-old, or an 80-year-old, we are witnessing all of the potential that God is gifting to us in our midst. But the truth is that we have to put that potential to work. We have to put it into practice if we want to be able to fully realize and understand the beauty of the gift that we have been given. Now today, the parenting trap that we're going to talk about is just that. How do we learn how to put this potential that God has given each and every one of us to work into practice? And if we do have um, children, how do we help our children or the children of this church learn to embody and embrace and put their own potential, which is different from ours, into practice and into, into work? When babies are baptized... 
They don't come up here alone. A four-month-old doesn't walk themselves up here. They are accompanied by a parent or a guardian. And that parent or guardian stands up here and takes the baptismal vows and professes the faith and commits to raising that child in the community of God. But then there will come a time where that baby grows up and becomes a person in their own right and will have to decide for themselves whether or not to accept the faith and profess those beliefs. Now, when my own children were babies, I remember just holding them when they were tiny and just looking them over. And in so many ways, they looked so perfect. Smooth skin, wide eyes, so innocent and untainted by the world around them. A world that would soon make its mark on my child and my child make its mark on the world. And the question, though might have been unstated, was what kind of mark would that be? What mark is going to be made with this child? And as a first-time parent, I remember that realization being amazing and awe-inspiring and, oh, so scary, so scary that another life had been entrusted to my care, a life that would need me to be able to provide for its physical and spiritual and mental and emotional needs. And that can be scary for us. And one of the reasons that I think it's scary is that this might be the first time in some of our own lives where we are forced to go eye to eye and to realize how limited we are in the impact that we can have over the control of a behavior of not only another human being, but our very children. How limiting that we really truly are as individuals. And it's a very humbling time. Before having children, I felt in relative control of quite a few things. Like, yeah, I can do this life thing. I got it. But then after children entered the world, man, that was humbling. Doesn't take but 24 hours to realize you're not in control of anything. Your sleep schedule is on their sleep schedule. You're awake when they need to eat. You're awake when they need to be changed. You're awake when they just decide they want to be awake from 2 to 4 a.m. for no other reason other than that's what's happening right now. And then two-year-olds, highly irrational beings, right? Complete, they do not care. They don't care what you expect of them or what anyone else does. The world kind of, kind of goes around that. No, I remember uh, our kids went through them this senseless, destructive phase, some of them. And I remember having to tell my kids, please don't do things that I never thought I would have to say, right? Like, please don't put toothpicks in a Nerf gun. Why am I saying this? Why would you even think to do something like this? You know, please don't hang toys from the ceiling fan. Please don't hang your brother from the ceiling fan. Like, why? You know, and it doesn't get any easier. I think it's scary for us to realize how limiting our impact is on the behavior of other people, right? For us as humans, I think that that fear can lend itself in one of two directions, one of two traps that we can find ourselves in. And the one is that we get scared, so we tend to be over-controlling and over-protective. And the other is that we're scared because we, we realize how limited of a control we have that we just become super like loose. Well, you know what? It doesn't matter anyway because I, they're just going to do what they want to do. 
But if we read through Scripture and we read through God's relationship with us, we, we, we see that there's a different kind of dance that's playing out there. Now, if you have children, I invite you to think through these scenarios in the context of your own family. If you don't have children, I invite you to think through those in the context of, of your own parent or guardian or maybe a mentor-mentee relationship that you have had. But I also invite all of us to think through this, through the relationship that we all have with God, our parent. Our gospel lesson today comes from John chapter 8. And you're certainly welcome to open your Bibles as, as we kind of go into that passage a little bit. This passage is in some ways, it's the crux of, of our Christian belief and our Christian faith and, and how this interaction plays out between Jesus and his Jewish disciples is essentially telling us now what is inherently different from everything that has come before them. In this passage, Jesus is teaching about what, um, what a true disciple is. What, what does it mean to be a true disciple? And Jesus links discipleship to two things, essentially, in this passage to knowing and understanding truth, and to freedom. Jesus is talking about truth and freedom in this passage. And this teaching confused his Jewish disciples because they did not understand what they needed to be made free from or for. It made no sense to them. You see, because their faith tradition had taught them that their freedom, that their relationship with God came specifically through um, the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. Their Abrahamic lineage is what connected them to God, and they had no other inclination or understanding of what they would be um, need to be made free for. They had a birthright, essentially, that was given to them. And their parents could just hand that to them simply from the family that they were born into. But Jesus chimes in in this passage and he says, no, 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 no. He says that that is the Old Testament. That is the law that you're talking about. But that he, Jesus, is the new covenant and he's the good news. That he is the truth. And it's in and through him alone that we can find our freedom and our purpose. Jesus is saying that the law cannot set you free, that your birthright cannot set you free, but that he, as the Son of God, can. Said another way, Jewish Christians had come to understand Abraham as the father of their faith. And Jesus is saying that each and every person What they need is a relationship with our ultimate father, God, Abraham's father, even. And that relationship can only come through the son, through Jesus. Jesus is saying that there is no grandfather clause. Now, that same thing holds true for each and every one of us in regards to our relationship with God but also in our relationship with our children and their relationship with God. Our children are not grandfathered in through our relationship and through our faith, no matter how desperately that's what we want. And I know there are many people that desperately want their children to understand the the peace and the forgiveness and the mercy and the love and the acceptance that come through a relationship with Christ. We want that so badly. And yet, this passage tells us that we cannot 
give this to our children. Only God can, and it's a gift they have to accept for themselves. Our Christian theology tells us that every single human being in this world, every single one of them, is made in the image of God. It's right in Genesis. It's, it's right there. All of us are made in the image of God, and every person you will ever meet is made in the image of God. And babies, at least, you know, after they get cleaned up, after they're born and their head returns to like a normal shape, you know, they look pretty perfect. They can look pretty perfect, right? Their skin, their eyes, they look so innocent. They look so untainted by the world. And yet there's this whole other narrative that our Christian theology tells us that no matter how perfect our babies might be, that they are entering this world that exists in a sin state. That is not saying that any baby or child has done something wrong. It's saying, our Christian theology says, that all of humanity exists in a state apart from God, if not for Jesus Christ. All of us. So no matter how perfect our children look, our human condition is understood to be separate from God, but for Christ. In the Old Testament, it was the law that attempted but failed to make people right before God. The law can't do that. In the New Testament, it's God's own self in the person of Jesus that makes us right and whole and redeemed before God. It's Jesus who is the truth and Jesus who gives us our freedom. Now, I think it's about the fourth grade. It might be younger, but kids in school, in their science class, will learn about energy at some point in elementary school. They learn about potential and kinetic energy. Now, just this past week, I asked two of my own kids just to try to remember, when when do you learn this? What, what grade is it? And I asked my one child, and, and he told me, he could tell me everything. He said, I first learned that in second grade. I learned it at Cub Scouts because I was making my car for the Pinewood Derby, and I YouTubed a video, and it told me all about energy. And then we learned it again in fourth grade science class. And then I asked another child who they're only a year apart, and that child said, I have no idea what you're talking about. This was never taught to me in school. This is not a real thing. You know, I have one child that has a backpack full of his locker and another that has a backpack full of footballs, baseballs, and sweaty socks. So we can figure out, you know, what's going on here. But um, regardless of what we remember or retain, children do learn this in elementary school. I promise you they do. And they, we learn that potential energy... Is stored energy. It's all that could be, but yet hasn't been put into motion or into practice or to work. And we learn that kinetic energy is energy in motion. Kinetic energy takes all the potential, takes the potential, and it does something with it. And the same thing here is true about our faith and our relationship with God. Our faith can sit there on a shelf. We can take our baptismal um, certificate that we get and we can frame it and we can hang it on a wall and look at it. We can bury our faith and the grace that has been given to us by God. Or we can try to bubble wrap one another because we don't want anyone getting hurt by the crazy world around us. We can choose to not allow God to put our faith into motion. You know, this is what grace essentially is. We have an amazing theology of grace in the Christian um, tradition and especially in the Methodist tradition. 
Earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 1, we see this. From his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Indeed, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Now, what sounds lighter, the law or grace and truth? What sounds like something that wants to embrace you and you embrace it back? We have an amazing theology of grace, and grace is what takes all of the potential that God has designed for us and sets it into motion along with us. And grace is what goes before us as we are moving. Grace is what powers us. Grace is what assures us that God is with us, that we're never alone, that we are forgiven, that we are children, that we are beloved. And grace is what promises us that God is going to bring it all to completion. Grace is unmerited. It's not, we didn't do anything to earn it. It's completely, it's given to us freely and it's available to absolutely everyone. There it is for the taking. But John chapter 8, our Bible passage for today, reminds us that this is something that has to be accepted by each and every, each and every receiver of the gift. We have to do that. We can't do this for our children. We can lead them. We can guide them. But essentially, it has to become their own. With that in mind, we are never alone. Our faith is personal, but it's never solo. There's beautiful imagery in the Bible about the church. The church is said to be a body. That means that we belong together, each and every one of us. We are interdependent of one another each belonging to God and each belonging to each other. So while we have to come to assume the faith on our own, we're never alone. We're never, um, we're not meant to be alone. We're not designed that way. My parents' faith isn't my own. And my faith is not going to be my child's, no matter how desperately I want it to be. I was raised in the Roman Catholic tradition. I went to Catholic school for the first 12 grades of my life. Um, and my school and my church were connected. It was one and the same. And there was nothing that my mom wanted more than for me to carry on the tradition that literally saved her life, that gave her life, and that walked with her and took care of her until she could be on her own two feet. My mom wanted nothing more than for that tradition to be mine. You know, but God was at work. The same God, the same Christ, the same grace a different person, a different journey. And so, you know, like many kids, I went through this like rebellious stage in elementary school where I said, yeah, I just, I don't want to go to church, right? I didn't really have a choice. I never had a choice. I would tell my mom I didn't want to go. She didn't care. But um, anyway, she did try to give me some freedom. Now in the Catholic church, we had offering envelopes that had like a distinctive identifying number on them. And that number connected you to your family, There was two of them for each worship service. The one was like the mandatory offering that you had to put in if I was to continue at school. Like this was like a thing, like they checked on it. And the other one was like some over and above second offering. My mom wanted me to get in the habit of putting these in, putting putting these envelopes in. So she would put some extra money in the the envelopes and then send me off to church. I said, okay, well, I'm going to walk to church. So she's like, okay, you know, you can have that freedom. But in between my house and church was a firehouse. And in the back of that firehouse was a little candy store. And so at some point in elementary school, I learned that I would take this little detour 
into the firehouse and I'd go back to the candy store and I began opening up that second envelope and buying candy with it. And then I would continue on to church. Now, in my defense, this kept me awake. The sugar kept me awake for whatever service that I was required to be at. Because if I wasn't eating candy, the other thing that I would do in church as a small child is I would look at the crucifix. In the Catholic Church, Jesus' body is there because they celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection each and every week. And as a small child, I would look there at the crucifix, and Jesus' head was always sitting on um, his right shoulder over here. And I would sit there and pray, Jesus, if you're real, move your head to the other side. Move your head to the other side. So, you know, what I'm saying basically is that the there's hope for you and your children because that is how I spent my childhood time in church and counting the rafter, like I would count what's on the ceiling. So anyway, but but it, but it came to came to find out that those identifying numbers on the envelopes they were enough to link me to this crime. And one day in school, I got called over the intercom, like please come down to the office. And like I came down to the office and I had to explain to the principal like why I was using God's money on Kit Kats and Airheads. And you know, no one was super happy about that. I'm pretty sure I was never trusted with the envelopes again. But you know, life carried on and. So did God's grace in my life and in my mom's life. And though she wanted me to continue in that tradition, and it was very hard and painful initially when she could see God was leading me in a different direction, she soon came to embrace and understand, as did I, that God is bigger than any one tradition. God is bigger than any one expression. And though God led her through this particular way, you know, God was going to take that and take me in, in a different, in a different direction. My mom's faith and her guidance and her support and her scaffolding and her insistence that I be part of a faith community, they all shaped me. They formed me. They gave me a foundation. But then one day, that faith had to become my own. And that was a scary day and an exciting day. But the same is true for each and every one of you. And each and every one of your children, if you have children. My children are not going to have my faith. And neither will yours. John 8 reminds us that we have to accept it for ourselves. But like I said, we're never alone in doing this. It's scary. There's a push and pull that goes on when we're growing into our own identity. It doesn't matter if it happens when you're 10, you're 12, you're 20, you're 40, you're 80. There's a push and pull. There's something that wants to take you back to what is safe and what's known. And then there's maybe God's grace that's leading you forward in a different direction. And then there's a whole host of other forces and influences around us. Um, But beginning on February 2nd, um, in just a few weeks, uh, myself and Michelle Paquette, our director of youth ministries, and Keith Priest, um, our counselor here on staff, we're going to be leading a six-week discussion based on this book called Growing With. Um, And this discussion is going to be for parents of tweens and teens. We're going to meet on Sundays between 12.30 and 1.45. The time um, kind of goes hand in hand with when our confirmation students are meeting. Uh, but you're, you don't have to have a child in confirmation to join us. If you're interested in being part of this conversation, you can register online. You can um, go to the connection desk and they'll tell you more information. But we're going to be talking about essentially that. What does it mean to grow with? What does it mean to grow with one another? Understanding that our journeys, our identities, our identity is rooted in Christ but how our faith plays out is going to look different. How do we navigate? How do we stay connected while allowing room for grace and for God's work? How do we embrace the change without being either, either too controlling or too loose? And what do our children need from us? We're going to be talking about all of these things. I've heard it said before that um, children or people who need the most love 
tend to ask for it in the most unloving ways. Now, if you think about how that has played out in your life, or you think about how it's played out in the lives of any uh, children in your lives, I think that there's some truth in that. Those that need the most love tend to ask for it in the most unloving ways, and that leaves us all confused about what we are supposed to do with all of that. God's grace gives each and every one of us so much potential. But we have to allow God's grace to turn that potential into action and into God working through our lives. If I think, if I can think of very quick things that John 8 teaches us about our faith and how it relates to those in our life, here they are. I think John chapter 8 teaches us that faith can't be transposed. You can't just take mine and, you know, stick it on your sleeve and it's yours. But I think it can be transmitted. It can be transmitted through um, being part of a faith community, through doing life together, through growing with one another, through active listening, through the gift of our presence, through worship and discipleship and service. can't be transposed, but there is evidence that it can be transmitted. Also, it can't be programmed. But proximation does matter. Everyone around us is looking at our lived experiences. No one cares really what I'm saying up here as much as what does this look like in life? How is this being lived out? And when others around us, be it kids or adults, see us putting our faith into practice, putting God's love into action, loving our neighbors, that proximation then begins to help welcome God into the life of maybe others who, who, who aren't sure what they think. So, you know, it can't be programmed, but it can be approximated. And parents, guardians, you're still the most important influence in your child's life, no matter how um, that, that tends, seems to be playing out. All research will tell you that. Research also tells us that if a child does not have a parent or guardian, if there is one person who takes an interest in that child, just one person who truly cares, that the life of the child will change and that that person becomes the most important influence in the child's life. We don't see this playing out. It doesn't look this way in reality, but it's true. And the final thing, the most important thing I think we learned from John 8, is that our faith cannot be inherited. It cannot be passed down um, simply um, via birth, adoption, or any other way um, that we grow our families. It can't be inherited. It has to be accepted. That's what it is. It's a gift. It's a gift. I would be willing to bet my life that if I asked every person in this room what your Truly, honestly, deep below your surface, what you're looking for and what you need. I'd be willing to bet my life that there are two things that everyone needs and is looking for. And that you want to know the truth. You want to know what what it means to be free in God. You want to know God's truth. You want to know the truth. And you also want to belong. You want to know that you belong. You want to know that you're beloved and accepted. You want to know about truth. And you want to know about belonging. And if John 8 has anything to teach us, it is that those are two amazing gifts that everyone is searching for that can only be given to us perfectly and freely by God alone. God is the giver of those gifts. Please join me in prayer.
Holy and loving God, God, we thank you for creating us as you did. God, we thank you for making us in a way that leaves no room for doubt that you desire us to be in relationship. God, you create us in the most vulnerable form ever. You bring us all into the world as tiny little babies that are dependent on everyone else to meet our needs. Let us never forget, God, that you have designed us to be in relationship. God, we thank you for the truth and the freedom and the grace that you have given to us in Christ. And I pray, God, that you allow us all to take that potential, take that gift, take that assurance, and that we allow ourselves to submit those all to you for you to do as you please. Your will be done, not ours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.